This information is subject to a disclaimer at the end of this podcast. Please ensure that you listen to the disclaimer and go to www.ubs.com for further information about UBS. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to UBS Global Research PodHub, a channel that shares insights from economists, strategists, and equity analysts on the pivotal questions and events shaping today's markets. My name is Aaron Captain, Global Head of Economics and Strategy Research at UBS, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about Russia and Ukraine and how we think it impacts global markets. Now, to do that, I'm joined by Anna Zadonova, Senior Economist for Russia and Central Europe, Reinhard Klusa, Chief Economist for Europe, Jonathan Pingle, the Head of U.S. Economics Research, and Banu Baweja, Chief Strategist for the Investment Bank. Uh, Anna, I'd like to start with uh, you and, and first speak about uh, the sanctions. Um, what's been imposed, what's not been imposed, and, and what do you think are the most important ones? Um, thank you, Arendt. Um, so among the um, very complex and, and large group of sanctions, um, those include um, sanctions on trade and on investment and technological transfer that would impact Russia's growth now and potentially many years ahead. But in terms of the sanctions that impact the markets and the day-to-day life the most uh, right now, undoubtedly the financial sanctions. Um, so first of all, the G7 countries and their allies have frozen about $300 billion worth of Russian central bank reserves. This means that the central bank is no longer able to be sort of a lender of the last resort in foreign exchange to facilitate um, foreign exchange transactions in the economy. That immediately triggered the imposition of capital controls. So in effect, it is now very difficult or next to impossible to process international payments, um, cross-border transfers, um, and indeed, um, there is very strict limits on how much even physical persons are able to take um, out of the country in cash. Um, the other group of sanctions has to do with restrictions on transactions with Russian uh, banks and financial institutions. So by our very rough calculations, about a quarter of the banking system is now a no-go territory for any sort of um, financial institution that is connected to the US or EU or Japan or many other countries. Um, And then roughly three quarters of the Russian banking system are now under some sort of restrictions, which again, the cumulative effect of that has been to to bring the um, international payments and trade with Russia to a virtual standstill. And, and so is there any real-time data that we can monitor to, to see evidence of that? So do you have any indicators that you're looking at to sort of gauge the, the impact on Russia? Well, there is very few because data, of course, comes with a large lag. But um, in fact, you know, with one of uh, reports that you've been the co-author with, um, we've tracked the shipping data. So we've seen that in the two weeks, since the invasion started, the number of ships inbound to Russian ports have dropped approximately by half. We've also seen the impact on prices because this data comes almost in real times. Um, and inflation has been up by roughly 5% in the first two weeks, again, um, post post the um, invasion. Um, and of course, we're getting a lot of anecdotal evidence that um, 
shows us that uh, even um, th that the effect is even uh, broader than the official sanctions would envisage. And so, for example, the energy sector is by design carved out of the um, sanctions by, by most states, by the EU and by, by Asian buyers of Russian oil. Um, but what we've seen is in, in the markets, the Russian crude, so the, Rus the oil that Russia sells to the market, um, sells with a big discount of about about $30 per barrel. And this is an indication that de facto Russian exports are being shunned by the buyers by, for a reason of you know, reputational as well as um, logistical reasons. So overall, it's, it's really hard to arrive at the numerical estimates yet, um, but we expect a contraction in GDP um, of about 10% this year for Russia. And we think that the GDP number for next year is also likely to be negative because it will take time for the economy um, to start um, operating again uh, un under this completely changed set of rules. So a recovery is going to take some time. Thanks very much, Anna. Uh, Reinhard, let's uh, let's turn to you. So, so one thing Anna mentioned is that so far the the energy infrastructure has been carved out of um, of the sanctions, and and obviously, um, you know, in trying to sort of come up with ranges of potential outcomes, it, it matters a great deal what happens there. But could you maybe talk us through some of the scenario scenario analysis that we've done as a group, and and how you sort of uh, go about estimating the the impact of what might happen? Yeah. So when we talk about the impact, we need to talk about transmission mechanisms. So how exactly does the war in Ukraine affect the Eurozone economy? And here I would mention four channels. The first one is confidence. So as the war, you know, impacts confidence in, you know, Western Europe as households and companies become more uncertain and perhaps more pessimistic about the future, they reduce spending and investment. That's the first channel. The second one is higher energy prices. So as households, but also corporates need to pay more for energy, they will have to reduce spending. Household consumption is being cut back because of that. Uh, also corporates uh, might have less uh, money to spend on other things. The third channel is exports. But here, um, that's perhaps not so important. I mean, our the Eurozone exports to Russia are only 1.5% of total exports. Uh, which represents like half a percent of GDP. So this is not really the crucial one, although generally exports are a transmission mechanism as well. And then the, the fourth channel I would mention is government spending. So the first three channels, weaker confidence, higher energy prices and weaker trade are negative. But at the same time, we would expect public spending by governments to be ramped up in the current, con in the current uh, context, more spending on defense, uh, more in spending on energy security, more um, government spending on household subsidies for uh, to compensate higher energy prices and also higher spending on Ukrainian refugees. Now, going forward, what will be absolutely crucial is to see whether uh, and at what level higher oil prices uh, level off. So how high will energy prices rise? How long will they be at that level? And secondly, also whether physical volumes of energy deliveries from Russia to Western Europe will be cut. Now, in the scenario analysis uh, we have done that you just referred to, we have firstly um, assumed based on oil prices um, after the first week of March, we have assumed that, um, you know, 
prices would stay elevated for a while. And in this case, uh, which does not imply that physical volumes would be cut, we have reduced our Eurozone GDP forecast from 4.2% this year to 2.9%. So we have cut our GDP forecast by 1.3 percentage points. But then we have calculated a second scenario where oil prices and energy prices would be a lot higher, in which case we have reduced our GDP forecast for this year from 4.2 to only 2.1. But then in the, in the other scenario, which is a lot more negative, we assume that uh, physical volumes um, from of, of Russian energy deliveries to Western Europe would be cut by 50 basis by 50 percent, which also means that um, oil and energy prices would rise a lot more. And in this case, we would think that um, GDP growth would be reduced to just 0.4 percent this year. Europe would go into a recession because the first and second and third quarter GDP would be negative. So uh, all combined, a lot will now depend on where. Um, oil prices and energy prices settle and whether physical volume cut uh, will happen. It's not part of our base case scenario that these uh, cuts will happen, but if they were to, uh, the implications for Europe would certainly be quite negative. Yes, yeah, so, so you have an outcome range effectively, you know, so, so right now what, we're, what we have is, I guess, a, is sort of a price shock and so that hurts, you know, the spending power that people have because they spend it all on, you know, more, more of their income and food and energy and so there's less to spend on other things and, and that's sort of what, what's in our numbers now. But then you have something, you know, if you start to ration energy, then you get something that's much worse. Uh, you know, the other thing that, that's maybe worth mentioning, um, just the discussions that in, in sort of trying to come up with, you know, gauging the impact of all this is we, we speak to our equity uh, colleagues who cover um, the companies on the ground. And so, um, you know, th th there's there's all kinds of um, supply chain disruption that potentially is going to be uh, coming from uh, Ukraine. So one example is um, uh, there's a number of factories in Ukraine that uh, produce something called wire harnesses. They're a specific part for cars. And um, uh, several of the German automakers already come out and, and said that um, they thought there'd be some shortages, there might be some supply chain disruption. But just what's interesting, just, just to sort of illustrate how fluid it is, um, you know, when, when uh, just after the invasion, we thought that was going to disrupt something like 10 to 15 percent of European auto production. Uh, and actually, um, now that we've had a bit more time to look at it, it, it looks to be smaller than that. Um, so the supply chains are a bit more diversified than we thought, et, et cetera. So, so a lot in real time, this is all very fluid and, and difficult to, um, to sort of assess. Um, I got another one for you, um, Reinhard. So, you know, the, while the UK and US have uh, imposed um, oil import bans, so in the case of the UK, it's, it's a phased import ban, and in the case of the US, it's immediate. Um, Europe has been lukewarm to the idea. It's, it's clearly sort of being discussed, but Germany in particular um, has been quite reluctant. Could you talk us through sort of the domestic debate in Germany about this and, and what sort of the politics are around this? Yeah, the, the thing is in Europe, of course, we are a lot more dependent on Russian energy than the US or the UK. Uh, for example, and, and Germany stands out in this regard, uh, Germany gets about uh, 25, 26 percent of its oil imports from Russia and pretty much half of its gas deliveries. So the German economy is very dependent on 
Russian energy deliveries. And that also means that cutting off Russian energy supplies would be very painful for the German economy. Uh, and it is against this background that the German government so far has been adamant that uh, they would not cut off uh, Russian uh, gas and oil deliveries. However, the public debate is underway. Uh, and um, there was recently a high profile opinion poll in which 55 percent of those who were asked responded that they were in favor of cutting off energy supplies from Russia, even if this were to imply meaningful disruptions and hence a significant cost to the uh, economy. 39% were against it, but still you see here that there is already a small majority of people who uh, would favor um, you know, cutting the energy supplies from Russia. I think going forward, the news flow will decide. So if the news flow from the war will um, you know, continue to dominate um, the, the broader um, news flow in Germany and, and Europe, I think the majority of those who are against uh, Russian energy supplies might um, continue to grow so that this could potentially force the German government and other governments to rethink the situation. Thanks. Yeah, there's some really difficult trade-offs here, right? Because, um, uh, you know, so while you could probably replace, you know, a quarter of the gas supply pretty quickly by importing more um, liquid gas and, you know, getting more from other countries like Norway through, through pipelines, you, you very quickly are doing things that politically are a little toxic, right? So leaving open uh, coal mines and, you know, in the Netherlands, there's now a debate about uh, leaving open a gas field that was causing earthquakes and, and things like that. So so you can sort of see the predicament, I guess, that the politicians are in. Jonathan, um, you know, when we wrote our big scenario note this week, a lot of people were surprised about how little impact we estimated this war to have on the U.S. Why, why do we not think it matters so much? The structure of the U.S. economy has changed uh, substantially in the last few decades. I mean, it, it, this might be somewhat counterintuitive, and it's certainly the case that uh, higher energy prices and higher gasoline prices in particular will pose a headwind for for many households, particularly low-income households. Um, but the, you, you, the structure of the economy has just changed so much that the U.S. economic performance is just simply not as negatively impacted um, by high oil prices um, as it once was. If we look at the economy today, we are the world's largest oil producer. We are slightly a net exporter of petroleum and petroleum products. And consumer behavior has uh, changed in the last few decades. Today, um, in response to higher gas prices, you'll see much more substitution than, than used to be the case, whether that's people opting for public transportation or, or simply driving less. Uh, the consumer's behavioral response is also uh, much different uh, than it used to be. So high oil prices today, you know, because we are the world's largest producer, you know, invokes you know, an investment response. It'll actually increase economic activity uh, in some parts of the economy. So when we think about the overall net impact on U.S. growth, it's a it's a much more modest headwind when we when we when we're faced with high energy prices uh, than, than than what we thought it might be, say, three, four decades ago. Great. And, and then the other thing that's sort of striking is, um, and we saw it this week with the, the Fed meeting, is that despite all the uncertainty and, and global growth likely slowing, 
the Federal Reserve seems to be charging ahead and you know becoming ever more hawkish and intent on, on raising interest rates. Now, that's not normally what we would expect to see from a central bank in the face of a slowdown, right? So what, what's going on there? Well, the Federal Reserve, they are, you know, even before the increase in, in energy prices, they they were just under substantial pressure um, from the elevated rates of inflation we've been seeing in the U.S. When I think about how, you know, the central bank, you know, the Federal Reserve might typically react to, you know, this kind of shock, they would they would often, we would think, weigh, you know, what, what do we need to do? How would we want to set interest rates to both control inflation, but also to, you know, maintain a strong, healthy labor market and fulfill our maximum employment mandate. But in, in recent months, the inflation data has simply been so high that, you know, the central bank now really finds itself in an awkward position where it's just simply paramount um, to them to bring these rates of inflation down. And they're under substantial pressure, not just, you know, from the data and the pressure they put on themselves, but also um, political pressure as Congress, as their oversight body, um, also would like to see them uh, bring down uh, inflation. So when we look at this shock now, we think about the most recent Fed meeting, almost all, and in fact, in the most recent meeting, every single participant at the uh, Federal Reserve's meeting said the upside risks to, inf- said there were upside risks uh, to their inflation uh, projections. High oil prices are not going to alleviate those concerns and simply, you know, are adding on to the risks that inflation could be higher uh, than the central bank uh, foresees at a time when an inflation is already higher than what the central bank wants. Great. Thanks very much. Okay, uh, Banu, let's let's bring you into this on on um, sort of what's uh, going on in the markets. It, it's been a pretty wild ride, um, and maybe you could start by just illustrating how wild uh, it's it's been. Uh, you know, what 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 kind of things are we are we seeing? Yeah, so it has been wild, but uh, the the degree of volatility in the market actually predates what's happened uh, since the 24th of Feb when Russia actually invaded Ukraine. So, um, as you know, liquidity has been tightening for a while, or the market has been expecting liquidity to tighten for a while, and therefore equity markets have been under pressure since then. So, we saw, uh, if you look at MSCI global equity, so that's the broadest measure of equity markets, we saw a peak to trough decline of about 13.6%. Some markets like the NASDAQ were actually lower by more than 20%, so what most folks refer to as being in a bear market. Since then, that has changed. But what's really interesting is that if you consider how the markets have moved since the 23rd of Feb, so a day before the actual invasion, I should actually say, uh, um, Aaron, that we should timestamp this because obviously market prices are quite volatile. So we're doing this recording around 1500 GMT on the 18th of March. But as of today, since the 23rd of Feb, 23rd of Feb being the time just before the actual invasion took place, the equity markets are up, right? So the broadest measure that I earlier spoke about, MSCI Acqui, is up by about 2%. The S&P is up by about 4.4%. And equity vol has actually fallen. Now, remember, it was at a pretty high level. It has been for the last three to six months. But equity volatility has actually fallen five points. If you, if you look at the VIX, it's come off by five points. And also what's interesting is stuff that hasn't happened, right? So in a typical downturn in the market, 
um, as certainly as large as 13.6% in MSCI Acqui, you would have seen bond yields rally. Uh, on the contrary, this time bond yields have sold off by about 65 basis points year to date. And even since the beginning of invasion, um, the bond yields have sold off. So bond yields have increased by 16 basis points. So that's really different in that this time as equity markets are coming lower, you're not seeing financial conditions become more accommodative. You're seeing financial conditions actually become less accommodative. There's an interesting debate on what the cause and what the effect is, but we are not seeing bond yields come down as equity markets came down this time. And so, so one of the big debates is stagflation, right? So we, we, we're in a potential environment where growth is slowing, inflation is going up, people are making comparisons to the, to the 1970s. What, what do you make of that and, and what do you think the market is actually pricing at this stage? Yeah, um, I think stagflation is, it borders on hyperbole at, at this point. Uh, there are some measures on which comparisons to the 1970s are uh, appropriate, but there are more measures on which it isn't, right? The energy intensity of the global economy has changed. Uh, as Jonathan noted earlier, the US economy is in a very, very different place. So it is very clear that in terms of inflation expectations, you're very much sitting at the top of um, a 20-year distribution. So there certainly is inflation, but the recession component is the one that's questionable. Um, what the markets are pricing in over the last um, few weeks, we've seen a decline in what kind of earnings are being priced in. And I'm talking about market prices, not analyst estimates. Uh, they had come down at, at, in the worst case at the, at the trough of the market by about eight percentage points. Now that the markets have rebounded, uh, you've now gone back to pricing in about a 4% decline in uh, in earnings estimates. But remember, you're starting from a very high level because just as um, Russia began to invade Ukraine, we were in a world where we were moving post-Omicron. We were in the early stages of supply bottlenecks improving. And so we were looking for growth to improve over a quarter or two. And, and so earnings expectations were actually quite high. So even if they come off four percentage points, you're still very much within the expansionary stage, not in a recessionary stage. So the markets are pricing in very high inflation, but the markets are not pricing in recession. Certainly the equity markets are not. There are some uh, that say that the flatness of the yield curve in the fixed income markets is saying that central banks will drive economies into recession as they try to fight inflation through higher interest rates. We have our doubts about that as well. We think that the degree of flatness of the yield curve doesn't quite give you the same signal on growth as it used to. All right, so I've saved the, the easiest question for last bound. So, so where do we go from here? Like, what, what, what you know, we're, we're we, we, you know, we're not experts on how this uh, war is going to evolve, um, and and neither are most people we speak to in in the markets. And, and yet, the, the market here has to make a judgment on, um, you know, whether what's worth buying, what's not worth buying, how much to hedge. Um, so, what what are we uh, currently projecting, and what are we recommending to uh, to our clients, sort of in in, in, in broad terms? Um, look, uh, I think even without the war, we have to, uh, the starting point should be this, that we are coming from very extreme levels of growth, i.e. very positive, and very extreme levels of liquidity, i.e. very loose. So the direction of travel, both on growth and liquidity, is unhelpful for the market from here. So the kind of returns that we have seen in the last three years, I think are well and truly history. Uh, we'll see much lower returns from here. But... If this war doesn't escalate from here, and I find it very interesting that as we speak, oil prices are up only 13% from pre-invasion and natural gas prices are up only about 13 to 15% since pre-invasion. That's not a very large move. That's not something that drives you into global recession. If 
we don't see a further escalation, then there is a serious case to be made that some of these equity values could potentially reco recover over the tactical horizon, which is the one to three month horizon. But beyond that, the fact that the Fed has a fairly univariate way of looking at things, which is purely inflation, the fact that real interest rates are likely to rise, both in the US and also in Europe, I think that will create headwinds for the market. So if risk aversion from this uh, this crisis, this uh, geopolitical crisis doesn't get the market in the very near term, the markets will still be compromised in the medium term by tightening liquidity. But between the very near term and the medium term, if you do not see an escalation, then there is a window for risk assets to rally. Great. Thanks very much, uh, Banu. Um, we're going to leave it there. Um, I want to thank our listeners for visiting the UBS Research Pod Hub. That was an overview of Russia-Ukraine global scenarios and implications for markets with me, Aaron Captain, Anna Zadronova, Jonathan Pingle, Reinhard Klusa, and Banu Baweja from the UBS Economics and Strategy Team. Please tune in again for more investment insights. This content has been prepared by UBS AG, its subsidiaries and or affiliates, and is purely informational in nature. It is not investment research and does not contain an investment recommendation nor investment or professional advice. It is not an offer or solicitation to engage in any investment activity, and you should seek your own financial, tax, and legal advice before engaging in any such activity. UBS has no responsibility to you in relation to this content. It has no regard to your personal circumstances or investment objectives, and receiving it does not imply any form of client relationship with UBS for any legal, regulatory, or tax purpose. This content is not intended for distribution into any jurisdiction where to do so would be contrary to law or regulation. UBS does not accept any liability over the content of such material or reliance upon any information contained herein. The views and opinions expressed by any guest speaker or third party are not those of UBS. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over any such views and opinions expressed by such persons. This content is the valuable intellectual property of UBS, and UBS specifically prohibits the redistribution of it in whole or in part without its prior written permission. Copyright UBS 2022. The key symbol and UBS are among the registered and unregistered trademarks of UBS. All rights reserved.